Well, if you have a Bible this morning, you can find Psalm 139. Psalm 139. Uh, next week, we will be kicking off a new series in the book of Romans. It's going to be the first of several series this year in the book of Romans as we're going to make our way through that book as uh, Lord willing in 2019. But we will start a new series called Revealed next Sunday uh, that we'll be spending about six weeks, Lord willing, in the first three chapters in Romans and uh, examining that together. So be sure to be with us next week. This week, as I mentioned earlier, is Sanctity of Life Sunday. And we're going to be in Psalm 139. And we're going to look at verses 13 uh, through 16 together this morning. And as we talk about the sanctity of life this morning, um, we're in particular going to focus on life in the womb. We believe all life is sacred, um, that all life is a gift from God and that people are made in God's image uh, from womb uh, to tomb. Every life is precious to God. And we also believe that's for, yes, the life in the womb, and we also believe the life of the mother and the life of the poor and the life of the rich and the life of every race and every nationality. As I, if I can quote Dr. Seuss this morning, a person is a person no matter how small. Um, and I would add to that, no matter where they live or where they come from or what their background is or what their choices may be, um, people uh, matter to God and are valuable to God. But why do we feel a need uh, to have a day marked uh, and call it Sanctity of Human Life Sundays? Churches all over America this morning um, commemorate this day and will do special things on this day to talk about why do we do that? Um, why feel a need to do that when given that it's sometimes considered controversial to talk about it? I can tell you there's probably some churches that won't touch this with a 10-foot pole this morning because it's controversial even though it shouldn't be in our culture today. Um, well, God's Word, first of all, celebrates the gift and value and purpose of life. It, it runs through Genesis to Revelation. You can't escape it. That life is from God, that He is the Creator, and that life begins in the womb. Uh, you cannot escape that in the Scriptures unless we want to ignore that this morning. And secondly, our culture is far adrift in this area and on this issue. And it's an issue that you and I, if you're a believer in Christ this morning, we've got to be willing to speak out on and talk intelligently about to some degree because it is such an important issue. I wish there was no need for this day. Um, I hope for a day when we won't need to have a Sanctity of Human Life Sunday that everybody would just kind of get it. Um, but we're not there. As you know, January the 22nd, 1973 uh, was a dark day in the history of our nation. It was on that day that the Supreme Court ruled in the case of Roe v. Wade uh, in a way that abortion became legal in the United States. Since that date, over 55 million babies have been aborted in the U.S. alone. In 2014, approximately 19%, that's nearly one in five pregnancies in the United States, ended in abortion. In 2016, approximately 885,000 abortions occurred in the U.S., saw on Thrive's website this week that in Orange and Seminole counties, roughly 10,000 babies are aborted a year in our counties right here that we live in. And in Orlando, about 19 children aborted a day. So I, just, I mentioned those statistics that are all able to, to be backed up, most of them from government websites, to say that this is a big issue and it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a dark issue. It's and today's not about politics. It's, it's about loving our neighbors and sharing the truth. And no matter what your political tribe may be, um, this is an important issue and should be an important issue uh, on this day and, and on every day. So we have a responsibility as believers in Christ to speak the truth about good and evil. Let me read to you from Ephesians 
Apostle Paul writes, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. And so I think we have a responsibility to expose what I believe is in what the Bible teaches would be the evil and the wickedness of abortion. Um, even if it's a difficult subject, even if it's a touchy subject, even if it's a, a debated subject in our culture and one that maybe we don't want to talk about around the water cooler or even in our families, or, but it's that big of a deal. And so it's, today is my hope from the scriptures to show you how precious human life is from the Bible and in so doing expose what is the wickedness that is abortion. And from today's passage, we'll see why every life is precious, in particular that of the unborn. So let me read to you Psalm 139. We're going to read one portion, verses 13 through 16. King David wrote this. He says, this prayer to God, he says, For you, God, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Now here in Psalm 139, David begins by speaking, if you were to begin at the beginning of that psalm, he begins by speaking of God's omnipresence and his all-knowing nature. David says God is so big, he's so great, he's so, if I can, God, that there is nowhere that David or that you and I can go to escape his presence. It does not matter where David goes. It does not matter where you and I go. There God is. God is everywhere. And, he, and David is saying he is sovereign. He's authoritative over everything. And then David here moves to the womb when he gets to verses 13 through 16. Even there he's saying God is sovereign and at work. He's so big. He's so great. He's so God that even in the womb, you cannot escape the activity of God. And David is telling us there is no place you can go to get away from God. Also, there is no time in your life, including before you were born, where you can escape his sovereign work, including the womb. So three things I believe this passage teaches us about human life and also how abortion rebels against these ideas. Number one, every human life, every single human life is created by God in his image. Verses 13 and 14 there, you formed, you see those, those verbs, you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together. David here is poetically and beautifully pointing out what is happening inside a mother's womb. God is at work. God is the one forming. The word literally means create. He is knitting. It means to weave and to shape. And if you've had a child, if you've been through the ultrasounds, you know what that's like to go week by week and to see these pictures and to see that God is forming, he's knitting, he's shaping, that we are, as David says, fearfully and wonderfully made, right? Made. Someone is making us. And I'm not just a product of a physical union this morning. God is at work. We have a maker, a creator. And God's works, he says, are wonderful. Here specifically, his works, he is referring to as what? The work in the womb is wonderful. See, the knitting process of God working in the womb has been laid out by many. Let me, I want to read to you. I, I, I'm, I'm, I pulled this out of a, a book called Ethics for a Brave New World, written by the Feinbergs. It's a phenomenal resource on this and other things. But let me just kind of walk you through briefly what goes on in the womb. At conception, okay, when the egg is fertilized, science tells you there that you get a new and unique individual with his or her own DNA from the moment of conception. Day one, cell division begins rapidly. 
days five through nine, the sex of the baby is already determined and the baby is implanted in the womb. Days five through nine. Day 18, the heart is forming, eyes soon to begin to develop. By day 20, the brain, the spinal cord, and nervous system are, are laid. Day 24, you get a heartbeat. Day 30, the blood flows in the veins and is separate from the mother's. Day 35, mouth, ears, nose take shape. Day 42, the skeleton is formed. The reflexes begin. The brain begins to coordinate the movement of the muscles and the organs. And day 43, the brain waves begin. Day 45, spontaneous movements begin in the, moon, in, in the womb. Day, and then seven weeks, the lips get sensitive to touch. Eight weeks, the taste buds develop. Eight and a half weeks, fingerprints and eyelids and palms become touch sensitive. And nine weeks, babies can bend their fingers around an object or bend their palm around an object. And ten, week 10, the body becomes sensitive to touch. Week 11, urination begins. Complex facial expressions begin. They can smile at 11 weeks. And it's been proven that at 11 weeks, they can feel pain. 12 weeks, vigorous activity. Kicking, turning of the feet, curling, fanning of the toes, turning the head, opening the mouth, breathing. 13 weeks, vocal cords have formed and the baby begins to resemble the parents. That's a lot. That's just the first trimester. I'm not even going to do the second. That's just, the third. That's just the first trimester, the first 13 weeks of pregnancy. That's God's forming, his knitting process in the womb. And notice David says here, he says, and my, I'm wonderfully made and my soul knows it very well. See, David's a human being with a soul. He's a person. Right? And our big debate in our culture is when, many times, when does personhood begin? And Well, notice what David says in the text. Can I just take you to the Bible? David says what? It was me that was knitted together in the womb. It was me, not something or some massive cells that later turned into me. That was me that was in the womb. That was David that was in the womb. That was you and I that was in our mother's womb, not something that would become us. And he spoke this way about the womb, and he could speak this way about the womb because he had a soul, and that soul has the fingerprints of God on it. He has been created in God's image. That's why God takes such tender care and making people because people are made in his image. Genesis 1.27, we know this. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We've talked about this plenty of times. Man is the pinnacle of God's creation. We're not, we're not, you and I are not like other creatures. You're a bigger deal than your dog, right? You might not be as well behaved, but you're a bigger deal, Right? We're a bigger deal than our dog and than our cat. Not, 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 not to demean animals. We should, we should steward all of God's creation well. God loves his creation. But only people are made in God's image. It's not even close, right? Not even close. Being made in God's image carries the idea that we are like God in some ways. And we have a responsibility to represent him and steward him on earth. Briefly, some ways we're like God. More morality. We have a conscience. We are morally accountable before God. Spiritually. We have more than a body. We have a spirit. We have a soul. We can pray. We can have a relationship with God. As David says, my soul knows it very well. Mentally, we can reason and think relationally. Our likeness to God enables us to have a relationship with God, to live in community and fellowship and of love with, with others. Friends, every single person in this room is made in the likeness of God, made in the image of God. This means that your life has dignity, has value, and has worth, but not just you. Those outside the outside this room as well, the, the people you've had trouble getting along with, 
the people that aren't like you, the people you have different views and lifestyles than, they are created in God's image as well, rich, poor, all races, nationalities, ethnicity, immigrants, refugees, you name it, all made in God's image with dignity and value and worth, and those in the womb. You know, I like to demonstrate this idea that this, this value that comes from God and being made in his image, and I, I kind of you know, forgot to do this this morning, but uh, sometimes I like to do this, and I've probably done it before here, which is like a $100 bill, right? So you imagine, we'll pretend. I have a $100 bill in my hand, right? And if I was to wad that $100 bill up and stomp on it and spit on it, and, and I, I love showing this to kids, you know, you can get it dirty, you can tear it in half and say, hey, this is not $100. This, this is now worth $10. And I say, anybody want this? And everybody's, you know, every kid's hand goes up, right? Everybody goes up because you know, I'll tape it up. I'll take it to the bank. They're going to take it, right? And, because, and is it now worth $10 because I said it's worth $10? We'd all say no. And we all know the reason. It's because there's an authority higher than Josh Malone that puts the value on money, right? The U.S. government has decided that's worth $100. So it doesn't matter if I spit on it or tell you it's worth 10 or fold it in half or, or get it dirty. None of that matters. What matters is, is what the higher authority says about it. And that's the way the image of God works in us. God's image, God's likeness is on you. And it doesn't matter what your ex says about you. It doesn't matter what your crazy uncle says about you. It doesn't matter what the culture says about you. Or about those in the womb, what matters is what God says. And God says, made my image with dignity and value and infinite worth. Let me be clear. It does not matter the stage of the pregnancy. The moment the egg is fertilized, you have a new being. That's science. Everything that new being needs, this is science, to fully grow into a grown man or grown woman is contained in the new being. Once an egg is fertilized, you have a new being with a new human DNA. That's, 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 what the, that's the DNA. You tested the DNA, it's human DNA. It's not, there's no chance it's going to grow up to be a coconut or a frog. It's a person. It's a human. And science says this, and God's Word teaches us this and points to this. As a believer, you have to realize that he or she is made in God's image. God exists in three persons. Think about this. God exists in three persons. Anyone made in God's image is a person because you're made in God's image. And in the womb, from the moment of conception, you have a human life, that's science, with personhood given by God. That's Bible. Because they're made in God's image. Let me note, if you, I don't normally point to resources, but Feinberg and Feinberg's book on ethics for a brave new world, world is just phenomenal on this subject. See, abortion takes a human life and ignores God's sovereign power over life. When a baby's aborted, it, no, no matter what stage or method, a human life made in God's image has been taken. It's, it's the killing, the unjust murder of a child. In fact, abortion is saying God is not sovereign over life. The mother is. The one making the decision is she gets to decide what a life is. If she wants a baby, it's a baby. If she doesn't, it's something else. It's a rebellion against God. It's ignoring and rebelling against his sovereign power. And those might be hard words to hear, but we've got to hear the truth before we can get to the good stuff of grace that we all need. Abortion is wicked, and it's the taking of a human life. The, the good news of the Bible is that, if, is that if you have committed or participated in some way in this sin, you can be forgiven, right? That all of us can be forgiven. We all have various sins and things in our past, but if we run to Christ, confessing our sin, admitting our sin, here's the good news. Jesus died for all sinners, all sinners, 
All, all kinds of sin, right? It doesn't matter the sin. Jesus' blood can cleanse any sin. If you confess your sin and look to Jesus by faith to take it away, Jesus will take it away. Jesus died for sinners like you, like me, like us. But the first big principle there is a human life. A human life is, every human life is created by God in His image. Secondly, every human life is seen by God. Verses 15 and 16, my frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, intricately woven. In the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. What's David's point here? There's never a time that God was not taking notice of him. God takes note of his image bearers from the beginning. From the moment he was being formed, God was involved creating, noticing, caring, watching. That phrase there, depths of the earth, is, is, is likely it's a, it's a metaphor of, the, of an idea of that when he was where no one else could see him, right? God could, even in the hiddenness of the womb. And notice the phrase, your eyes saw my unformed substance. That's the ESV. He's talking about when he was an embryo, to use more scientific measures. Some would say a clump of cells. David says God sees that. That unformed substance, he says, was me and God saw me. It's obvious David means more than like when I saw the church sign on my way in this morning, okay? When I saw the sprinklers on when I came in this morning. It means more than, it means taking notice and really examining God's in a knowledgeable, relational way. Listen, do you know this morning you were seen by God? You may feel unnoticed and forgotten. God hasn't forgotten you. God sees you. He sees me. God desires a relationship with you. He has, he has made you. You are the handiwork of God. You know, as parents, we get this idea of, uh, of seeing. You ever watch your kids when they don't know you're watching? Me and Christy did this the other day. Kids were outside in the yard, and they're playing, and they're around the corner, and there's a window that normally the blinds are closed. They don't think we can see it. They're over there, man. They're having this whole conversation. Living, and they're apparently trying to figure out how to get out of the backyard, which was kind of disturbing but because we <laughs> live kind of close to the road. And so, and so we're just kind of watching. They're having this whole conversation about can they, can they get this, unlock it? Can they climb it? What can they do? And we're just watching them play, you know, or you'll watch them sleep, right? And if you and I do that with our kids, or if you did that with your kids, if we, just, if we take that much note of that, how much more note do you think the omnipresent, all-knowing God is taking of you even when you are in the womb? He just likes to watch. He, he notices. He's, he loves his creation. The gospel tells us God cares and God sees what happens in the womb. Let me ask you. Let me give you a very clear implication and this was one that I've probably not thought as deeply about as I should do this week. But I want you to think about this. How did God save us? He took on human flesh. He sent his son who became a baby in a womb. A little embryo. He became the most vulnerable member of society. Now why did God do it that way? Because that's how, what had to happen for God to save his people. He had to become a person and experience what per, people experience and go through temptation and, and resist it and, and live a sinless life so he could die in our place. That's what the Son of God had to do. God had to become a man. And God didn't just experience one part of being human. He didn't just show up as an adult. He didn't just show up as a toddler like Superman left in a field somewhere. And people are like, oh, wow, it's, you know, where did this kid come from? He could have done it that way. He's God. He could have done it however he wanted to, right? He could have just... Take it on human flesh, sun comes, and he just like shows up in a field somewhere, right? In Idaho. I don't know if anybody would have felt anything back then in Idaho, but you get my point. 
that's not what God did. He showed up in a womb. I got to thinking, why? Why would he do it that way? It's real simple. That's where life begins. That's where being human begins. Jesus' human nature began there too. God became an embryo. He, he became the little unformed substance. And when we took on human flesh there, became a fetus there. Why? Because that's where humanity begins. Listen, can you explain to me at what point God the Son was expendable in the womb of Mary? At what point He became something other than human? At, one point, at what point He had humanity but not personhood? See, our Savior, God in the flesh, came to save people and He took on the full human experience but without sin. Womb to tomb. And He experienced being a little baby in a womb and being a toddler and a teenager and a full-grown adult. He experienced the beginning of life and the end of it in death. If what is conceived in the womb is not a human, it's not a person, why did Jesus become a baby in a womb? Jesus came to redeem humanity and He took on the full experience. Because he came to save all kinds of sinners. And he came to redeem all kinds of people. Right? And we all need Jesus. We believe in something called original sin. That means you were, you're, you're, you're born a sinner. Right? And so Jesus came to save sinners. And he took on every stage. And lived righteously and died in our place. I'm telling you, the gospel demands a pro-life ethic. It's heresy. To believe anything otherwise, knowing that. See, abortion ignores God's omnipresence and his activity in the womb. It acts as though God does not see, God does not care. Abortion is it's pitched as a private decision. It's done hush-hush. But David tells us God sees, God knows there's another in the room, and he, he cares about both the mother that's in a maybe a difficult circumstance. He cares about the baby. And he does not believe the vulnerable has to die for the strong to live and to thrive. God sees this. But many abortion proponents continue to fight for things like making, thing, making laws where minors can have abortions without their parents knowing. knowing. You can't even go on a field trip without your parents knowing. You can't even get on a school bus without your kids knowing. But people will fight for, children to, for teenagers to have an abortion without their parents knowing. Why? Hush, hush. Nobody needs to see. Nobody needs to know. But I'm telling you, David says God sees. God knows. Even when they're in the womb, he knows. God sees what's happening. Third principle. Every human life has purpose. Every human life has purpose. He says, in your book were written for me every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. See, David is pointing to the fact that God has plans for his life. That in fact, those plans were before David even lived a day outside of the womb. When as yet there were none of those days outside the womb, God had plans for those days. See, this passage just the points to a truth that, that God has a purpose for all human life. Where, where there is life, there is purpose and therefore hope. And, and God has an ultimate purpose for each of our lives. He's been concerned with my life and your life's direction and intention from the beginning. David alludes to an element of this purpose in these verses. In verse 14, he says what? When he examines the creation, he examines his human body. He says, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. That's why we're here, right? To praise Him. Ultimately, to give God glory, to, to live a life that brings praise and glory to God. David says, when I think about how you made me, I praise you. And that's a huge part of God's plan for our lives. He, he wants us to, to, to bring Him glory with our mouths, with our words, with our lives, 
with our choices. Isaiah 43, 7, God says, Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Listen, God has a purpose. He has a plan for life. But it's tied to Him, not separate from Him. Purpose is not found outside of God. It's found in relationship to God. And He has a purpose for every life. And that purpose is to bring Him praise. To give Him glory. But abortion ignores God's purpose for life. In fact, abortion is not concerned with what God's purpose is, either for the life of the mother, I believe, ultimately, or for the unborn baby. Abortion places personal purpose, personal plans over God's and over that of the life of the baby. One of the top reasons given year in and year out for abortion is, and I quote, I'm, I'm just not ready to have a child. I'm not in a position to have a child. In fact, it's become in our culture, mostly about freedom and desire. We call it freedom of choice. Abortion says, my plans for my life matter more than God's purposes and plans for this baby. Ultimately, it's saying, I am greater than God. It's our own declarative I am statement. Let me read you a quote. It's a little lengthy, but it's important. This is from John Popper. He says, our modern, secular, God-dethroning culture has endowed the will the want of a mother, not just with sovereignty over her child, but with something vastly greater. We have endowed her will with the right and the power to create human personhood. He goes on. We endow her will not just with sovereignty over her unborn baby, but with the authority to define it. If she wants it, it is a baby, a person. If she does not want it, it is not a baby, not a person. I want to be clear. The, the problem with abortion is the problem with every sin. It seeks to dethrone God. It seeks to exalt self over God. It ignores what God has said and what God has done, and it declares humanity, ourself, as sovereign. Every sin does that. Every sin's a rebellion against God. It's not just this one. This is just one we're talking about this morning, but they're all rebellious in this way. And I believe it shows our, a cultural value in our particular culture being wrongly applied and idolatrized. And, and that cultural value is freedom. Freedom is doubtless considered the preeminent American value. And freedom's a good thing. <laughs> I'm thankful to be free. But let me read to you this quote from Tim Keller's book, Making Sense of God. Very perceptive. He says, Today as a culture, we believe freedom is the highest good that becoming free is the only heroic story we have left and that giving individuals freedom is the main role of any institution and of society itself. It has always been important, but now it is ultimately important. It is the one truth that relativizes all other doctrines and beliefs. So one might say, someone should be free to do what they want with their body. Someone should be free another cultural debate, to marry whomever they want, right? Freedom, personal freedom, without limitation, to pursue personal desire. The problem with this is none of us believes it. You wouldn't be okay with someone doing whatever they wanted, for instance, if it brought physical harm to you or your family. See, when our worldview is being defined simply by us and not being shaped by God's word, our views get distorted, even our view of freedom. Abortion, see, is an assault on the unborn's freedom. And one should not be able to take that freedom to live just because one is more powerful. Even the mother. 
In our culture, people desire sexual and personal freedom and their own personal interpretation of what that is to the point that they are willing to do whatever it takes to protect it. And let me read to you from James 4.2. You desire and do not have, so you murder. And our culture is so obsessed with pursuing our desire and wants of sexual freedom and personal freedom as we each personally interpret that, that we are willing to ignore God's purpose and God's plan for human life. Because, hey, my plan trumps all. In the name of freedom and desire and want and ultimately, idolatry. Idolatry always requires sacrifice. And abortion is idolatrous and sacrifices another for the cause of self-worship. I know that's hard to hear. I know people are in difficult circumstances. I know many people are deceived. That's not the point. The point is what's actually happening when we peel the lake. What is the enemy doing? What is Satan's work in this? And this is what is happening. Listen, abortion is, is anti-gospel. You say, what do you mean it's anti-gospel? The gospel tells us Christ came and gave his life as a sacrifice, right? What? To take our sin away. Believers, we know this. We know that God doesn't call us to sacrifice others for our own agendas. In fact, the gospel calls us, it tells us one laid down everything for us so that we can have life. And then it calls us what? To lay down our agenda, take up our cross and follow him. The gospel calls us to rest in Christ's sacrifice and to live sacrificially now for the good of others. It's anti-gospel. Now, let me address a concern here. People will say this. They'll say this, as believers, we believe this, but should we be legislating morality? Who are we? It might be wrong for me, but should it be wrong for them? Can we really judge on this matter? Let me be very clear. We would not take that view with hardly any other moral position on earth. Well, I think it's wrong to kill teenagers, but who am I to judge you? See, that, that belief that I don't want to judge you for doing that, I don't, want, I, don't, I, don't want to, I don't want laws that would prevent you from doing that, I don't want to talk about that, it, it's rooted in an idea that the life in the womb is not as important as the life out of the womb. Don't be deceived. If that's where you're at, that's the lie that's been pulled over your eyes. Abortion is unnatural. It kills babies. It hurts women. It offends God. And it is the scourge of our nation. We look back now with shock and are appalled that 200 years ago people allowed and supported slavery in our nation and it seems barbaric and wrong. And here's the newsflash. <laughs> because it is. Right? Because it is. And could it be that future generations a couple hundred years from now are going to look back and say, what were those barbarians in Western civilization thinking? God's Word, the truth, and science are on the side of life. It's only a man-centered, selfish, idolatrous view of the world that's on the side of the culture of death. So here's the question. What do we do? What do we do? Well, first of all, first word is repent. If, if you've had an abortion, if you've aided in someone having an abortion, if you've performed an abortion, you need to know, yes, you have sinned against a holy God. But you also need to know this. God loves you more than you can possibly imagine. More than you love yourself. More than you can possibly imagine being loved. And that you can be forgiven if you haven't been. And God wants you to repent and come to Him. And repent is not a bad word. Some people in our society who use it wrongly or foolishly make it sound like one, but it's not. It's a hopeful word. It's our only hope. 
This means we turn from our way to God's way, from our sin to Him, from us being in charge to Jesus being in charge. And we need to know that this is a real sin that needs real forgiveness, but thank God real forgiveness, real forgiveness is offered in Jesus, that He laid down His life and died and rose again to remove all sin from us. And there's nothing that you've done that can't be forgiven. The Son of God became a baby in a womb, was born, died, and rose again so sinners of all types can be saved. There is no sin God cannot take away. There is no sin that Jesus can't remove. And you have not committed an unpardonable sin if this is your sin. If you need forgiveness, if you'll look to Jesus today, He, and let me say this, only He can heal you. Those who have encouraged abortions, supported and cheered for the abortion movement, may be very clear. I love you, and you need to repent too. Say, I've never had one. I'm telling you, if you voice support for it, we would, I would say that about any sin. When we give support and we voice support for sin, that is sin. We're to have nothing to do, as we read in the beginning in Ephesians, with these ungodly, unrighteous works, but rather expose them, not cheer them. So the first word is repent. The second word is pray. Pray for ministries like Thrive. You're going to hear from their executive director in just a moment. Like Thrive, who are in the front lines. Pray for change law, laws. Pray for it. Pray for babies to be saved. Pray for mothers to be saved. Pray for families to be ministered to. Pray for hearts to be changed. This is, this is a heart and idolatry issue. And that's the primary thing that needs to happen. Thirdly, engage. Engage. Get involved. Love and serve people. Listen, being pro-life and a jerk, <laughs> being pro-life and mean is unchristlike and does nothing for the movement. The pro-life ministry begins with loving everyone we come in contact with and serving all people, especially hurting and disadvantaged people. Now let me tell you, if, if, if you're pro-life and you're not pro-lifting pro the poor out of poverty, you're doing it wrong. One of the primary people who get preyed on are, are those who are poor. A huge percentage of abortions many times comes, comes out of that segment of society. Hopelessness is something the enemy uses in this war. And it is a war, a spiritual war. Adoption and foster care. That's another way you can engage. Would you pray about it? Would, you have, would God have you adopt or to be a foster parent? Be willing to pray about it. It's a great way to support life. Vote. Listen, steward your vote as one who sees the world through the lens of the gospel and believes this book. I ain't got nothing to do with red and blue and Democrat and Republican. That's not my deal this morning. I'll never get up here and tell you who to vote for. I will always tell you where, where, what God's Word says about moral issues. You sound like a single-issue voter. Listen, just because someone's pro-life doesn't mean they can, they, that they should be in government. You can be pro-life and a fool. You can be pro-life and, and lead a, a, a state or a city or a nation into the gutter. It's not the only issue, but it's a really big issue. Issue. And if you're looking at all things and steward your life with the gospel worldview, you will, you, you will think about ways you can leverage your vote for the sake of life. Give. Our church gives weekly to Thrive, for instance. You can give and support ministries like them and others. Volunteer. You can get involved with ministries like this, and, and you can volunteer. There's a myriad of ways that you can get involved. Wherever we're at, the, the main thing is we, we can't stand on the sidelines. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray for us this morning. And, um, and then I'm going, to, I'm going to invite Yvette to come up. And we're going to have a, a short question and answer time with her. 
And, um, and then uh, after the end of that time, we're going to pray for her ministry, and we'll have a time for you to respond um, in your heart or if you need to, if you need prayer this morning, and we'll sing our, our final song before we dismiss. So let me pray for us. Father.